There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. If you don't want to look like a complete and total gaper, take off the plastic shrink wrap from your rod handles before you fish with them. When you see the fish and are ready to make your final presentation, don't jump up and down in the air. If one of my boys in Louisiana threw a koi in some gumbo, I'd be like, ooh, that looks delicious. Looks spicy picante. In a very roundabout way, smallmouths share some of their taxonomic history with one of the greatest black exploitation films in history. Good morning, Degenerate Anglers. Welcome to Bent, the fishing podcast that still, even after all these years of doing it, gets a case of the bubble guts when it sees a V-wake trailing a surface bait, a stud redfish cruising a flat, a wide-headed trout sipping in the seam, or a pop culture reference only a small amount of weirdos like us actually get. I'm Joe Cermelli. I'm Miles Nolte, and uh, and to everyone out there listening, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an admission, like straight up, I am mm. not the smoothest uh, the smoothest guy on the water, or okay. or anywhere really. But I'm I'm especially prone to losing my shit when it comes to sight fishing. Oh, that is well, true. Yeah, that's totally understandable, though, right? Yeah, but I feel like I'm not supposed to say that. Like, I feel oh. like, you know, as fishing industry professionals, we're supposed to pretend that we're like <laughs> these super hardcore badass fish slayers. Dolomite is my name and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. But I'm not. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly no Rudy Ray Morin. For those of you who caught that reference, more to come later in the show. Uh, <laughs> straight up, though. Straight up. When it comes to sight fishing big fish, I still compl- I totally get the yips, dude. I still get them. It still no, happens. Yeah, man. I mean, so do I. But I've, I've found that like my level of choke directly correlates to the number of shots, right? It's like yeah. a math problem. Okay, so take the the average of, of shots times how many days do I have to enjoy this fishery, and then you get like the square root of how badly I'll shit the bed, you know? And then if you add mm-hmm. in the variable of there's a video camera, and this is important, the bed shitting percentage rate increases by pi, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, no, that that I think I think your math works out there. Mm-hmm. I'm not it totally does. sure, but it seems, seems about math. right. Yeah. But like, dude, I mean, I, I think to have some real talk on this, for me, there are particular problem species, right? Mm-hmm. The, the ones that some of the ones that are supposed to be really hard, I don't have a problem. Like Florida permit, no problem. Not, really? not that they're easy fish, not that they're easy fish, but I, I, I don't choke and I have a, a good track record of presenting well to them and catching them. I don't know why. I know people with permit tattoos that haven't hooked one yet. Like they have the tattoo of the permit and haven't hooked one. <laughs> Maybe that's the problem. There you go. Putting the cart before the horse there. Exactly. You know? <laughs> but like, dude, Hawaii bonefish, mm. one example, total Achilles heel for me. And mm. and for people who don't know about that fishery, Hawaii does have bonefish. And they're oh, yeah. quite large as bonefish goes. And they get a ton of pressure, not just from recreational anglers, but like people trying to kill them and like homeless people trying to net them. Like they live a life of pure terror. So they're always neurotic (laughs) and, and they come up into these very shallow sand flats to feed on shrimp and crabs when the tides are right. And you can stock them on foot Mm -hmm. and it's all sight fishing. Like you can see the fish, you can see their backs, you can see their, their tails and their dorsal fins and you watch them feeding. And so when you screwed up, you have no one to blame, but yourself. Right. And and I'm not exaggerating when I say that I've had days where I blew 50 shots in a row, like 50 opportunities at feeding fish in one single tide without even getting one fish to eat. It's a lot of and shots. like I get I get done with a session like that <laughs> and I'm like have I wasted my life? Like what where did I go wrong? Like I've spent all these years fishing and I still suck this bad at it. Like it it gets to me, dude. Hawaii bones definitely on the bucket list. I know a lot of people who who have gone to chase that dream, but I've I've never been there, right? So I I can't really speak to that. All my boning has been done in the Bahamas and Turks and Caicos, and this, like that's a prime example to me of my math equation. You're you're never really or usually I should say in bonefish places for a day. Like you don't just yeah. end up in Bimini or Abaco for a day. So <laughs> you've got time. So even if they're like if you have one tough day, assuming you don't have like you know awful weather for your entire trip, strong chance you're gonna get at least one good day out of it. But in in recent memory, if I'm being totally honest, my last bout of total sight fishing suck was actually with you. You mm-hmm. took me to a spring mm-hmm. creek in Montana last winter, and, and it was it was one of those deals where it's like okay, there's big brown right there. He's in eight inches of water. You're gonna sneak around this way and mine your shadow and. Nail the drift with a with a nymph and a ten foot leader on the first cast. Like that's not it's not happening. I that I can't handle that, and I didn't handle that. I caught nothing that day. That, I remember you catching at least one fish that day. You're I'm, being very I'm, nice, but I, I lost one because when you walked away and I took the nymph off and put a giant woolly bugger on, I'm like, you're gonna you're gonna f-ing eat, and it did, and I snapped it off, and that was it. <laughs> Uh, I, I, maybe I'd, I'm giving you my, more credit in my memory. I don't know, but to be fair, like that, that is a, that is a, that Creek's tough. And I had home field advantage. I've fished there For a sure. lot, but, but then, so like the, another, another example of, of, of me blowing it on particular species, like last summer we were filming DOS boat in Minnesota. Right. And, yep. and when we were working on the, the Buffalo episode, for those of you who saw it, the, the Cal and I were in, we would target Buffalo in the morning and then the wind would come up and the Buffalo disappear. So we had the rest of the day to, to fish for other species. Yeah. And I, of course, would end up musky fishing, even though it was middle of the day, midsummer, because I have a problem. So I was throwing one of those like giant defiant swim baits that, that Oliver and I loves and, and has turned me on to. Oh, yeah. And the lake we were on is crystal clear, like 10 feet of visibility. So I can see the bait 
the whole time. I'm watching it and I'm tracking it and I'm working along this weed edge and I can see it. And then there's this big, like three foot long flash, which to be clear, if I'm being honest, that's not a big musky, but still a three foot flash. That's a big flash. It gets your yeah. heart rate up. Yeah. And, and I see this fish coming. It's all lit up. It's charging the lure. It's not a follower. This fish is serious. It wants to eat. And I just have to just keep doing what I'm doing and it's going to eat. And I see it and I stop mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, the cardinal rule that everybody knows in musky fishing. The one thing you never do is stop your lure. And I know that like, I'm fully aware of that. Yeah. I have told that to other people, but that's exactly what I did. And you know, of yeah. course the fish was like, I'm not interested in it left. And I totally blew it. Gone. Done. No more shots. I, I've done that. I've I have done that very same thing with muskies several times because it's such a hard thing, and then you finally see one, and it like takes your breath away, and you gape yeah. at it. You become a gaper to use I, your nickname. I, right? That is my nickname. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you what I have I have never actually caught a muskie in a figure eight in my life because I've botched pretty much all my figure eight opportunities. Yeah, and just zigged when I should have zagged because you I got see, one. I got okay. one, but I, it was like 24 inches, so it okay. didn't really get like the hard pumping, you know? That's not that's neither here nor there. The point is that as soon as you see it, like yeah. now that I'm seeing it, I will screw it up, right? So I've never got one in the eight. The handful of muskies I've caught ate way out and like, you know, three turns of the lure and hammered it like a bluefish 50 feet out. And those are great. I like those muskies, you know? But then, <laughs> like, if you think about it, what makes sight fishing goofs even more likely is when you have somebody watching you. Which oh, is yeah. fairly common. If you're on a guided trip, you're out of town. Like, good chance somebody's breathing down your neck, and then it, because then you, it's it's instant Monday morning quarterbacking, and that's the shit. It's like, oh man, and you you know you should have stopped, and if you had stopped, it, oh man, I would I'd have kept that fly moving. Or my favorite, <laughs> this is my favorite one, right? Oh man, if you just had a couple more feet between the fish and the boat, he'd have ate that. Oh, you know, so like yeah, you thanks. ever have that one? Yeah, a couple yeah. more feet. Oh, anyway, totally. It wasn't your fault. (laughs) Physics. (laughs) Anyway, good sight fishermen keep level heads. And uh, our friend and guide, Alvin Dedeau, certainly keeps his head level. He's a very even keel guy. He is. He's very very on the level. He's mellow. Yeah. He's also no stranger to sight fishing. So we brought him back for our smooth moves segment where we call up guides, outfitters, captains, and sometimes even shop jockeys, anyone who makes a living helping other people catch fish, really. And uh, we asked them to tell us ridiculous or hilarious or idiotic stories about things that clients do. And wouldn't you know it, Alvin has a story that will get more of your Monday morning sightcast and quarterback saying, well played, bro. Good job. Why did you do that? Why? Why did you do that, Terry? Oh, my God. One of my favorite smooth moves that I witness quite often on the boat, on the skiff, fishing for tailing redfish in shallow water, very skittish fish. And it's one of those kind of games where you got to go to from zero to a hundred at the blink of an eye. So we're cruising around, we're looking for fish, looking for fish, no fish, no fish, no fish, no fish. All of a sudden there's a fish, 60 feet, one o'clock. Okay. Hang on. We're going to get a little bit closer. We're going a little bit closer. Okay. You're good. Good. Put a cast out there. And then the move is the body pump where, okay. <laughs> We're we're trying to sneak up on this fish in like eight inches of water. They can feel every vibration from a mile away. And all we got to do is ease up on them in the skiff. I'm pushing it as quietly as I can, trying not to spook them. And right before 
my client makes the cast, he's got to do a little hop, the body pump. <laughs> when you kind of jump up in the air a little bit and then come down. Don't ever take your feet off the ground. It's just like a little like compression move. And it's awesome because what happens is it sends the pressure wave through the hull of the boat all the way up to the fish. And before the fly even hits the water, the fish is gone. And I'm looking for another fish. So, yeah, the body pump. Classic. And this, you, move. you see this happen all the time, Alvin? Like a lot of people sort of subconsciously do the body pump in that situation? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a weird thing. I mean, I don't do it, but it's just because I've seen it happen so many times. It's like burned into my mind. Like when you see the fish and are ready to make your final presentation, don't jump up and down in the air. See, I've never I've never thought about it, but now I'm thinking back and I'm like, oh, God, I probably do the body pump. Like I probably do that. There's some variations on the body pump, you know, like the two step. Or the three step, you know, the pat pat pat, or the double yeah, the pat, little, the little the little like tap dance of excitement. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's that's just a variation. I mean, just think about it. You know, um, is that I can't one called remember. twinkle toes? I'm just curious. Twinkle toes, <laughs> yeah. You know, double tap, triple tap, two step. <laughs> it's a move with a lot of names, <laughs> but they all have the same result: <laughs> a spooked fish. <laughs> Oh yeah, I've I've done that. I've I've body pumped. I probably two stepped. I don't I don't know. I've I've probably three stepped. I I, I think that probably that might have been what cost me uh, this tarpon that I blew it on after I flew all the way to Cuba to catch one. Oh, and that's the worst, right? Yeah. Like that is the absolute worst when you screw up on a destination fishing trip. You know? I ain't flew all the way overseas in the middle seat for us to get over here and f up. And for me. That's when the self-loathing comes out. <laughs> if I'm going to be, again, if I'm, this, is, this is an honesty day for me. Like, I, if I blow it on a nice trout somewhere close to home, I, I, can, I can shake that off. I can forget yeah. about that one. I'm, I'm on. I'm on to the next yeah. one. There, there'll be another one. It's fine. I can do this tomorrow. But on the road, like, I've not just let myself down. Now I've let a guide down, too. Oh, yeah. And having been a guide, yeah. like, I know. Your guide's <laughs> going to say, oh, don't worry about it. We'll find another one, <laughs> right? Because that's what guides do. That they're professionals. That's their job. But but that guide actually thinks, God, this guy sucks. Oh yeah. And like oh yeah. He, the, the the guide takes your failure personally, and and then pretty much hates you. <laughs> that's just the truth. That's how it goes. And I know it. Yeah. And no matter what, look, whether you're with a guide or by yourself, right? I, I've found over the years in in, in sight casting scenarios at least for me personally, like you have to nail the first one or two shots. Like if you execute yeah. and get yeah. those first one or two, it's, it just sets you up for success. And then like it's fine. It's, Everything else is great. Yeah. That like that gets the confidence way up. And I tend to be more on it for the entire rest of the day. But the more you screw up early on, the more you miss on those first couple of shots, I think the more likely it is you'll keep screwing up. Right. And then that's, that's, that's why you got to keep your cool. From the outset, you got channel your inner uh, Andre 3000. I, I don't think I have an inner Andre no? 3000. No? <laughs> I don't know. I, I think I have more like an inner Rivers Cuomo. Watch me I'll soon be naked. 
And this feels like a good time for us to bring in this week's awkward moments in angling. Seems like a good time for that. Let's do that. Why don't you take a picture of the last longer? <laughs> Who are we slapping on the awkward moments in angling chopping block this week? The chopping block in which the blood of our last victim, Alex Reed, is still drying in the wood grain. The, the answer would it's a be disturbing image. <laughs> the really answer is. would be, <laughs> hey man, come on. The, uh, I like it. I like it. I'm not. Uh, I'm not giving you a hard time. Okay. All right. Well, the answer would be Mr. John. I'm going to say Brower, but it could be Brewer because there's elements of his name that could go Brow or Brew. So one of those two. Do you have a, you have a, an opinion on that? I'm going with Brewer just because I like the idea of him being you know a okay. Brewer. But that's all. John, no matter who you are, you're John Brewer for the rest of this. Um, anyway, John sent us his photo along with these opening lines in the email. He says, here's a pic from a few years ago that is objectively pretty silly, but I'm still slightly proud of, okay, which is a slightly weird. And the way I see it, um, its inclusion here on this segment, John, will either make you more proud of it or possibly less because you've given us so much to talk about with this image. And we, we've kind of had a habit of, of starting like with the attire or these the the scenario in in awkward moments, and mm-hmm. we sort of like end up coming around to the fish at some point. But this time we're going to start with the fish because initially I couldn't find the fish. Wait, there's a fish? <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yes, there, there's a fish. Of course, there's a fish. We know there's a fish. But <laughs> before we talk about that fish, I just want to say, man, I love this photo. It's a good one. So much. It's a good one. Like. If I were to describe this photo, it would be just like pure, unfiltered, unpolished, mm. no ego, mm-hmm. no bullshit fishing joy. You're right. When I see this photo, that's what I see. <laughs> I, I see someone who is like transcended all the BS about taking a photo. And is just like, oh my God, I'm having the greatest day fishing. <laughs> John right and now is like, it's, he's like, it's still pretty positive. Still pretty positive. <laughs> <laughs> He's just like in this photo, he just, he radiates everything that is good about fishing, you know, setting aside the fact that in order to find the actual fish in the picture, <laughs> I had to do that like squint and refocus that, that I, we all developed with the, the magic eye 3d picture books. When we were kids. I was you, definitely getting there. You, you and I did some of our younger listeners would be like, what's a what's a magic guy. Um, but there, there is in fact a fish. Um, it's an extremely tiny trout. Okay, and while John didn't specify the species, I'm thinking micro cuddy. It's a mountainous setting. Could could be a micro brookie, like a main setting. It's really it's hard to call. Okay, um, but according to John, it was worthy of photo documentation because it was his first wild fish, and by that I assume he means his first wild trout caught on the fly. And you know what? Like bravo. There's nothing wrong yep. with that. Props Absolutely. for that, no, man. We all start. No somewhere. judgment. Yeah. No judgment. And my money is on cuddy. Okay. Not brookie, just from what I can see, but it's hard okay. to tell. Uh, and it's it's not only hard to tell because the fish is like really, truly, I mean, <laughs> if you guys look at this, you'll see like tiny, tiny. But also because whoever took this photo was standing like 10 feet away, mm-hmm. which is, you know, <laughs> good depth of field. The background is gorgeous, but it's, it's not so good if you if you got like a macro <laughs> subject that you're trying to capture. Also, we got to talk about the hold in this or like whatever that is. I don't even yeah. know if we can call it a hold. So John's got his fly rod in his right hand. And I got to insert a quick tip here. If, if you don't want to look like a complete and total gaper, all of you out there, 
take off the plastic shrink wrap <laughs> from your rod <laughs> handles before you fish with them. This is like oh. a basic thing that we should all know. And if you don't know, hey, maybe no one's told you, but now you have no excuse. Take it off before you fish. Anyway. That's a, you, that's a pet peeve of mine. Like, yeah. like, I see that, and I've had people say, like, well, I do that to keep the cork nice. I'm like, no. I have too. You take that but off. Take it off. <laughs> Just the cork feels good in your hands. Plastic feels terrible. <laughs> anyway, so he's got his shrink-wrapped rod in his right hand, and then he's like, he's also holding his leader in that hand, but mm-hmm. then... Further down the leader with his is his other hand, he's like way up in the air holding further down the leader. And I, I just don't get it. He's like way above his head holding that leader from which the fish is dangling. Yeah. And it I, I don't understand. I can't yeah. see why anyone would hold their fish that way. Yeah, like yeah, he's got his one hand extended way up and and this this tiny dangler is hanging. <laughs> Right in front of the screaming yellow life jacket that John's wearing. So basically, if you're just like doing a quick glance, it looks like John was, I don't know, like photographed in the middle of doing the YMCA (laughs) while holding a fly rod. Because you can't see the fish. Uh, Like you have to hunt for it, right? You can't see it. Um, Unfortunately, though, right, the fish is kind of the least of John's offenses, okay? Because perched atop John's like Napoleon Dynamite hair, Okay, is some cross between a cowboy hat and like a crocodile Dundee hat, right? It appears yeah, to be yeah. made. Of, yeah, it's crocodile Dundee. Yeah, right? it it appears to be made of felt. It is extremely mint green. Oh, so minty. Okay? It's so minty. Uh, it has a, a band that could possibly be made of like amber beads, featuring Dino DNA. Um, and he's even got the chin strap there cinched <laughs> tightly under his chin, like he's all in on the hat. Like the hat is secure. The hat is not coming off in a hurricane. Um, and the hat and the strap, it frames his face nicely, and that's a face that's uh, wearing Ken Griffey Jr. sunglasses. Wow. That was uh, that was a menagerie of reference <laughs> points you just gave there. <laughs> you don't even know <laughs> where to go. Look at you. You can get so many directions. <laughs> uh, I'll go with I'll go baseball. That was, a, that was a Griffey reference, a Griffey Jr. reference, which it's, I appreciate. It's very, it's very and, rare you get to sneak yeah. one of those in, so Yeah, I'm no, proud. that was good. I like that. And, and – uh, you're right on, dude. Those shades do look a lot like like uh, like the Griffey shades that he was mm-hmm. was so famous for. They've got that same uh, in, I don't know inverted trapezoid thing. Yeah, and yeah, the the glasses are quite sporty. But uh, I gotta say, John does not look particularly athletic. No, in the rest of his countenance in this photo, uh, the dude's nope. kind of like a hot mess out there. Again, lots of joy, but not really all that well put together. He's got like it's messy one, joy. The, yeah. His, his, <laughs> both his pants are rolled up, but one pant legs rolled up higher than the other. Significantly. And, and, yeah. And, and he's got like his, 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 his fishing shirt wide open and one side's hanging down further than the other. And, and, and then his life jacket is also wide open and it's like straps falling everywhere, which again, not real good for fly fishing to have straps and things to catch your line hanging it's everywhere. It's not, uh, despite all of those, however, Perhaps the least sporty thing in this photo is the watercraft that is parked on the beach mm-hmm. next to John. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would yeah. actually, I would actually argue that the the vessel he's used to catch this fish makes the catch more significant because I wouldn't want to fish out of it. No, I, I do, dude. I I want to say I fished out of worse, but I'm actually not <laughs> sure. Uh, <laughs> it's like you got you guys got it's it's like a a two person inflatable canoe kayak hybrid that I'm going to say came from Walmart. And there's 
there's nothing wrong with inflatable Walmart boats, but they, they've got limitations, right? They're not yep. like your best fishing yep. vessels. They don't have any gear storage, and they're very, very easily punctured by sharp objects like, I don't know, hooks, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, how the hell do you cast out of that thing? Yeah, there's because there's he's not standing up in that, or if he is, God, no. maybe that's why he's wearing the life jacket. You know, it's yeah. a warm day, and he just yeah. figures I'm going to spill. But like, you got to understand when we say inflatable, we mean all parts. It's not like inflatable with a hard frame, like the seats. Like, there's no part of the boat that's not filled with air. No, it's a rubber raft canoe kayak thing. Stability for for me, for a man of my stature, is like a huge factor. And I've been I've been on several watercraft that were built better than this, and I still got the jitters like I, I recall a time that me and another fella threw giant swim baits on musky rods out of a rickety 10-foot john boat for a few mm. days but i think that probably most of us have been on boats like this right where it's like everything is going to be fine as long as nobody moves yeah you know what it's I'm like saying? no sudden movement or like if yes. i go this way you go that way and we Correct. have to be in sync it's it's yeah yeah yeah, or just go really, really slow. And that's all fine. Again, this is the kind of watercraft that is perfectly fine if you're booze cruising. Right. But fly casting requires motion and, yes. and mobility and movement. Yeah. And I don't think John's going to send this this rig off any sweet jumps. That's that's what I'm <laughs> guessing. Way to rein that one back in. We'd love to see a video, though, if you ever decide to shoot the shoots in that sled, though, John. <laughs> oh, good one. Good one. I'd also like to add that uh, John concluded his email by calling this fish a turning point in angling for him, which is cool. But then he goes and ruins the sentiment by adding that he hasn't picked up a fly rod again since this day. So. I don't that, that <laughs> truly to me, that's the bummer of all of this, yep. of the whole thing. Because again, despite all the shit we've been talking, the main attribute of this photo that I want everyone to take away is the, the joy yep. of John. Like he is having a sublime life moment here. Yeah. And then he yeah, stopped we, doing yeah. it. I know. We might have trashed you, but you were you were happy. And and happiness matters in this day and age, my friend. Um, yes, John, please pick that fly rod back up again. You should. Um, hopefully we've also just created a turning point in your headgear choices. <laughs> if we had bent hats, I'd send you one, but we don't. So you're gonna have to settle for stickers. John, we do appreciate you sending the photo so we could have some fun with it. And remember, if you want to be subjected to this madness, send your awkward fishing photos to bent at the Remember, you guys can now see John's photo on me and Miles' Instagrams. That's joe.cermelli138 and Water Miles. Uh, it's, it's there basking in all its glory on the internet. <laughs> everyone to see. Yeah, poor guy, poor guy. But in fairness, it's critical, I think, that you learn the basics of macro photography for tiny fish. <laughs> Which makes me wonder, like, if maybe John doesn't have Instagram, because if you know what you're doing, even a little bit, like, you can take a shot of a four-inch mud minnow and make people think you're the shit. You know what I mean? If you do it his way, you just just end up on bent and get trampled over a hat. (laughs) I really hope that wasn't, like, his favorite hat. (laughs) Me too. I, I wonder. I wonder if John's an archaeologist. I, I like maybe that's his archaeologist oh. hat, or like maybe the hat that's been handed down through his archaeologist generations of fan. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm making up not. a story that that would make us real jerks if we we were like making fun of his lineage. Anyway, speaking of getting trampled, let's head down river in a an inflatable flamingo toward the waterfall of uncertainty and see who swan dives over that drop like a pro in fish news. Fish news. That escalated quickly. All right, this this week I have a shout-out I want to start with. If you've followed this show since the very beginning, 
you might remember that our first ever end of the line segment covered the Beatles spin. And in that, I whined and complained that Johnson stopped making the Magnum size at some point. Right? Oh, and yeah. Then, and recently, yeah, you remember me complaining about that. <laughs> yes. So recently, I got this photo from, uh, from listener Chris Lawler. And there he is holding up a brand new in the box Magnum size Beetle spin at his local tackle shop. And I was like, what? What? Where did you find that? Yeah. And so at first, I, I chalked it up to a regional oddity because Chris lives in Canada. So I was thinking maybe Johnson decided to only market the larger size beetle spins up north, but that just doesn't make any sense. Right? Yeah. So, so now I figure I'm wrong. I got to do a little more digging. Then you were thinking so it was new old, new old stock, right? I would have been like, oh, it's new old stock. I, I, I knew something was up. I'm like, new old <laughs> stock or like, but what, what, what the hell's going on? So I went back into my internet hole and it turns out, you can still get the half ounce size beetle spins here in the U.S. You just have to really look for them specifically. Okay. If you search the internet for Johnson original beetle spin, which is what I did when I was writing the end of line segment, you will not find anything larger than a quarter ounce. If, however, you Google half ounce beetle spins, you will discover something different. Long story short, it seems like the supersized beetle spins somewhere got rebranded as saltwater lures and separated oh. out from the original beetle spins. And so now they only come with gold blades and are only available in a handful of colors, but they do still exist. So I just want to say thanks to Chris for sending me down that deep, deep hole and also sending me a couple and, uh, and forcing me to figure out the mystery. Thanks, Chris. Based on, on what you just said, only gold and certain colors, the, what, they're pushing them for what? Trout and redfish, right? Trout and redfish. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, that's good news. Um, you and 12 other freshwater fishermen are super <laughs> excited right now. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> All right. I got, I got just one baby shout out. Uh, quick one uh, to listener Anthony. It's either Marchant or Marchant. Okay. It's one of the two. Rarely do we get a name where I'm like, oh, it's just Smith. So that's okay. Um, <laughs> but he wrote in following up to our little convo about um, good luck charms and, and pre-fishing mm -hmm. rituals and things like that. Yep. And I just thought this was fun, and I'm going to steal something from him. He wrote, after the pre-fish dump, but before the morning cigarette, when we are gathering our gear, I will look over at my brother Alex or my buddy Nick and go, you boys ready to get skunked or you boys ready to wash some lures? We do this to lower That's expectations and not get worried about catching any fish. I yep. have never heard somebody say, you ready to wash some lures? Nope. And nope. I, I, I am, like that. I am stealing that. Anthony, that's yeah. a good one. I'm taking it. Uh, so that's it. That's my shout out. Wash. I, wa I wash a lot of lures. You'll probably be washing some <laughs> Magnum Beetle spins pretty soon. You're damn uh, right good I stuff. will. Good stuff. All right. On to news. As a friendly reminder, this is a competition. Miles and I do not know what stories the other guy is bringing to the table. At the end of it, uh, as always, our, our audio engineer, Phil, the Ayatollah of rock and roll, will judge us and declare a winner. And right after that, we're going to do a little trivia with our friend, Mandy Yorick. You are up, man. You have the, the you get to start today. All right. Uh, so for my first story, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be sticking with that, that, that Canada theme I brought up my shout-out, and I'm also going to be piggybacking a little bit off of what Sam Lundgren covered last week when he was on here talking about... Uh, is, he still, is he still alive before we go on? Last I okay? heard. 
Last I heard, heard I, from I, him? I have not received any. Yeah, I did. <laughs> I did a couple days ago. He's not dead, and I don't think okay. uh, I don't think anything bad's happened to him yet. So, um, you guys will remember he he was talking about concerns over Olympic Peninsula steelhead potentially getting listed under the Federal Endangered Species Act and how that would impact fishing for them and the whole culture of steelheading out there, right? Yep. So we're going to move from the Northwest to the even farther Northeast and talk about a similar situation playing out on the East Coast of Canada. The Department of Fisheries and Oceans is considering listing certain Atlantic salmon populations under the Species at Risk Act, or SARA, which is the Canadian equivalent of the ESA. If it goes through, this listing would apply to salmon populations in over 130 rivers in Quebec, Nova Scotia, and Newfoundland and Labrador. Okay, so let's start with, with some basic facts about Atlantic salmon populations in Canada. Much like the steelhead and the OP, they're not doing so hot. They've dropped from about 900,000 mature fish returning in 1973 to about 100,000 in 2020. Mm. And that's approximately 94,000 fish below the estimated minimum to maintain a viable population. Okay. Also, much like the steelhead and the OP, the reason for these continuing declines are numerous and they're not easily fixed. So the Canadian Committee on the Status of Endangered Wildlife has recommended a threatened or endangered listing, which the Department of Fisheries and Oceans or DFO is currently considering. That might sound like a good idea, right? The, the fish are in terrible shape. Give them yeah. the highest level of protection available. Let's save these bastards. But salmon conservation groups disagree. The Marguerite Salmon Foundation, St. Mary's River Association, Nova Scotia Salmon Association, and Atlantic Salmon Federation are voicing strong opposition to the listing and spearheading a campaign to pressure the Canadian government to stay away from this move. Again, going to feel familiar. You've heard these arguments before. Right. Yeah. Listing these populations could put an end to recreational fishing, which would alienate the primary advocates that the fish currently have. We all know anglers put more time, effort, and money into saving the fish they love than anyone else, including, you know, the PETA people and the, the conservation groups, right? So right, right. taking away our ability to fish for them could functionally cut off all that major support. And you know, even better than I do, the kind of money that Atlantic salmon fishermen drop, like big well, money. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I'm, I'll, I have several things to say. So, but go I, ahead. I'm, I'm not done. But like that, that's no, I know, that is I know. one group of anglers who spends money, right? And so, well, yeah. <laughs> so advocates also worry that that closing these rivers would put additional pressure on the rivers that are still in good shape, right? These are all arguments we've heard elsewhere. But some of their concerns did feel unique to me and and seem to go even further. According to the Guysboro Journal, which is a regional newspaper in Nova Scotia, a SARA listing does not compel DFO or other government agencies to do anything about the actual threats a species might face, such as resource extraction, agriculture, and unregulated fishing. In a statement on their website, People for Salmon, Atlantic Salmon Federation states, SARA would take people off the water, threatening a long tradition of shared stewardship, Yet experience shows that serious threats, like open net pen salmon aquaculture, would be left alone. Deirdre Green, a board member for the St. Mary's River Association, claims, When a species is listed under SARA, there is a general prohibition against harming and harassing that species. This has been known to impact critical research, recovery, 
and restoration efforts. So it's possible that listing these fish could not only like prohibit fishing for them and not actually help the major issues or stop the major issues that are threatening these populations, but could also limit the ability of researchers and conservation groups to study and manage these fish and fisheries as gotcha. doing so might fall into the category of harassing protected wildlife. I do have to say the Department of Fisheries and Oceans is still considering this issue, and they have stated publicly that even if they do list these populations as endangered, they may still allow recreational fishing and other research and conservation activities. So all of this is to say, Canadian listeners, and we know there are some of you out there, if you care about salmon, this is a good time to write an email to your Minister of Parliament and the Department of Fisheries and Oceans and tell them what you think. Remind them that fishing is conservation, that, that anglers can and should be conservationists and stewards of the resource. Their decision on this listing is, is, is expected later in this year, and they're, they're taking public comments. So I think now is the time to, no matter how this goes down, get your voices heard so it doesn't go in the way that all these groups are worried it might go. Yeah, yeah, no, and I, I totally agree with that, and I will say... I am certainly no expert by any means on Atlantic salmon. I've fished for them in in, in the Canadian Maritimes once. It, I thought it was awesome. Um, but it's one of those species that that me and a lot of other East Coasters in general, like you're intrigued by. Like I have friends, we've talked about doing Atlantic salmon trips for years. We never actually get around to doing it, but I'm I'm just intrigued by these fish. And you you brought up, you know, spending money. Um the one thing that, that I think is different here or strange, again, I'm not that familiar with the totality of the West Coast steel scene either, but it just seems a little different to me because I almost feel like if you really want to experience Atlantic salmon fishing in Canada, good Atlantic salmon fishing, you have to be willing to pay a shitload of money to do it. Like you, you cannot just, you can't just go up there and fish. It doesn't work that way. So I mean, part of the reason why I've I've never I've never gotten there, like I've always wanted to do um, the Restigouche. There's a few rivers up there that like, I've always wanted to do, but you're not exactly getting media invites, and I don't have that kind of coin. So this is interesting to me that these fish are are that they're attributing any hurt really towards over recreational fishing because from my view, and again, this is my ignorance, it seems like in the overall scheme of things, there's so few people doing it because it is such an elite thing to do that, that, yeah. that really this is harming in the overall scheme of things a very small amount of anglers it's not like saying well you can't nobody can trout fish uh in in montana it's like tons of people do that the atlantic salmon thing just seems like such a small group of of very rich people that do it you know, I mean, I think that's true for travel anglers. I think the the local cultures of those places are still very much tied to Atlantic salmon fishing, and yeah. and those aren't those aren't huge communities, but the people who live there, man, that's in their blood. It's what they do. It's what they've always done. And I'm in the same boat, man. I've always wanted to fish Atlantic salmon, and I've never done it because same deal, right? No, no one's offering up media trips to no. go Atlantic salmon fishing because they don't have to, and I can't afford it, so I've never done yeah. it. Uh, but I do think to, one thing to point out, I, this is this legislation, this, this potential listing is not aimed at angling. That would just be a, a consequence of it. They're talking yeah. about listing them just because they're in really bad shape. 
And the angling groups are jumping on that and saying, whoa, 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 hold on. If you do that, you're going to push us out. And I think that's going to have unintended consequences that you don't want. So I don't see this as like the big bad government trying to attack anglers. I think this is an opportunity where anglers need to step in and say like, hey, we're on your side. We're, we're part of the, the solution here. Let's work together. No, and I, I, I completely understand that. I think I, I know they're not targeting anglers. I just if you look at these two stories side by side, the the steelhead and the Olympic and 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 the salmon, totally understand. I have friends up there who who live up there and yeah, they spend a lot of time Atlantic salmon fishing. They're lucky enough to live where the waters in their backyard have wild freaking Atlantic salmon, which I think would just be the bomb. I can't even imagine that. Um, but it's, it's a harder fight, I think, to, to bring that awareness to on our side of the border, because it is such a, 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 a small group of people that are going to do that. Like, I want to see this work out because I still have that dream and I don't want to get off on it, but I, I fished the Miramichi one time and we did very well, but we also did it in the spring during black salmon season. And I was ignorant and didn't really understand the difference between the two. So while it was cool and it was super fun, I've never had that bright silver eating a bomber experience. Right. You know, like right. I haven't had that yet. And I hope I haven't to. either. And I don't want to have to go to millions. Russia to yeah. do it. Yeah. I'll just say that. I don't want to have to go to Russia <laughs> to have that experience, which you kind of do right now. But Exactly. But it's also, I will say, it's also a bummer um, just to hear that it's so problematic because so many states in the U.S. have tried to reestablish their runs. And in the back of your head, it's always like, man, they're faced with so many issues. I don't know if I'm ever going to see that in my lifetime. But, you know, hey, if I I can always go to Canada if I really want to. I can always go to Canada. And now to hear that, shit, like that might be off the table too, not good. Yep. Like that's not good. that's not good. So um, I hope that I hope that works out because I will get there someday. Uh, in the meantime, I have a feel-good story. Yeah, this is a much more feel-good story than that. Uh, and it's winter, so I just generally don't feel good, you know? So this is like a, a ray of sunshine <laughs> in my cold, bleak existence. Uh, and several listeners actually sent this my way. And it comes to us from USA Today. Headline, Angler Hooks Giant Lake Trout While on the Phone with Surgeon. Okay. So uh, this happened also in Canada. We're very Canadian today. I just realized. Very, very Canadian. There's just nothing good going on in the States. Now that I think about it, my second story is not in the U.S. either. Do something, people. Make some news. Help us out here. Uh, So this happened in Canada, British Columbia. um, And not long ago, 57-year-old Murray Zelt had to have emergency surgery to remove an obstruction in his intestines. And that went well. He recovered nicely. But naturally, after surgery, you make a follow-up appointment right, with your doctor. And now Murray lives in the town of 100-mile house, okay? And the closest big town, I guess, with legit medical facilities is Kamloops, where we get all those famous rainbow trout, you know, the Kamloops fish. Uh, But that's roughly two and a half hours away from where Murray lives. Well, the morning that he was supposed to head to the doctor's office, he gets a call that due to newly tightened uh, restrictions because of the COVIDs, they wanted to switch his follow-up to a phone call instead of in person. So Murray says, hell, I'm up early. I got up mad early to drive to Kamloops. Now I don't have to go to Kamloops. I may as well go ice fishing at nearby Horse Lake. And I, I... I really don't think he had to think about this too hard because just two days earlier, he had caught his personal best lake trout through the ice on Horse Lake, and that was a nice 14-pounder. Good fish, right? 
So Murray heads to horse, drills a bunch of holes and gets after it. Uh, and he jigs for a couple hours with nothing. No, no, zero bites. And then his surgeon calls and Murray begins his post-surgery follow-up. Um, the doctor had all good news, said everything is great, you look good, and then adds, oh, by the way, uh, you're free to resume outdoor activities now. So the irony in that, <laughs> right out of the gate, right? But as those words came out of his surgeon's mouth, Murray's jig gets slammed. So what does he do, right? He puts the surgeon on speakerphone, naturally, and his surgeon is is apparently an avid angler, and they enjoyed the fight together via cell signal. Okay, with his surgeon post follow up. So, so he immediately had to admit. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but he immediately had to admit, like, I'm allowed to. Yeah, he's well, like, I oh, I'm actually am. sitting on. A, he's like, I'm sitting on a frozen lake right now. So, did guess not what? I just the, got wrecked. <laughs> Check this out. <laughs> the clearance. Here's the kicker. Right. Here's the kicker. The Laker that he hooked while on the phone with the surgeon weighed 27 pounds, shattering uh, Murray's other PB by 13 whole pounds. Damn. Isn't that great? Isn't That's that, great. Isn't that, isn't that nice? And most impressive to me is um, the, the quality of the cell reception on Horse Lake in BC. Because <laughs> I, I looked it up on a map and y'all are out there. Like, I would have just assumed that was, you know, like, please God, let this text go through country. So, you know, I, I, yeah. I think it's a wonderful story. And I also give the surgeon credit. Like, this is a guy who's probably very busy and very official, but like he hung around on the phone to listen to the lake trout get caught. That was probably the highlight of his day. Let's be Probably. honest. He's like, yeah, there's someone dying in the next room, but I got to hear how this ends. I'll be, <laughs> we'll I'll get be to better the for it. We'll get, to the, we'll get to the gallstones later. What do you got? What's on <laughs> what there? Got? What, what, Don't I, horse it. Don't horse it. Yeah. <laughs> so congrats to Murray. Murray looks like a character in his photos. He's like, he's he, the way he's smiling with his, with his fur hat on, he looks like somebody in grumpy old men who would be really fun to hang out with. Like I, like, hey. I feel like Murray would be a good time to, to jig Lakers with. I, I like anyone who fishes in a fur hat. I'll, I'll admit that. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on FishingBooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at FishingBooker.com to book your trip today. 
You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild. But searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. You started this story out by describing how your cold, bleak winter existence. I believe I believe those yeah, are the words you used. Very much so. Yeah, that is. <laughs> My story is 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 about our collective cold, bleak winter existence and somebody who's trying to maybe make it a little less bleak. It's it's a little short. I don't have a lot to say about this. I just think it it's it's kind of cool. And uh it's about the use of de-icing salt on roadways. If you if okay. if, if any of you out there live in, in Arizona or Florida or someplace that doesn't have ice, uh there are <laughs> states and cities in parts of the world where we get regular snowfall. And uh, and that yeah, snowfall contributes to. If you, if you live in Arizona, to... you, you you just call it salt. It's not de-icing salt. It's just salt. <laughs> uh, the people in Flagstaff are really hating us right now. But there are other. In northern climes, we get we get the snow and the ice, and it cakes up on the roads mm-hmm. and, and makes for dangerous driving conditions. Right, and and cities and 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 states and towns will spread some combination of sodium, potassium, and magnesium chlorides on the road ahead of, during, and after snowstorms. These compounds lower the freezing point of water and make the snow and ice melt faster and at least in theory make the roads safer and here in the US mm-hmm. we use a lot of this stuff like 200 million tons per year which i didn't realize until i checked this out and oh i use, i use half of that on my driveway you know what i mean <laughs> it it might make traction on the roads better but these these salt compounds also have drawbacks. As anyone who has ever lived in a state that uses a lot of road salt will tell you, they wreak havoc on the undercarriage of your vehicle by causing rust and corrosion. You probably know about this, I'm guessing. I was just going to say, I just had my whole truck reframed, and I'm sure the salt had something to do with it. Definitely. It, it definitely did. And it's not just bad on vehicles. It's really bad on vehicles, but it, it, it also damages roads and bridges and like messes up all kinds of infrastructure so it's it's bad for things and i'm speaking specifically of things like cars and roads and bridges and metal it's great for not getting sued by ups like you don't want him to slip on your step you know what i'm saying (laughs) i I, i'm not i'm not negating the necessity of these things i'm just i'm just pointing out that they have some drawbacks and some of them are environmental because yeah. all the all the snow and the ice, it, it melts, it turns into water, and the water carries the chemical compounds into streams and rivers and wetlands and lakes and oceans. Are you going to be talking about your own state in this at all? We don't use that you're much not, salt. You're not allowed. Oh, that's why I was going to ask. That's why I was going to say because Montana, like you guys, are big no no on salt, right? We're we're a big no no. I'm not. I, I decided. I kind of omitted this out of that story because I didn't think anyone would care that much. But yeah, we we avoid it for just this reason. No, I only bring it up because last time I was out there and there was heavy snow and I was sliding all over the place walking around town. I'm like, why doesn't somebody salt this shit? And they were like, oh, no, don't say that. We don't, ooh, there's no salt here. I'm like, what? 
Anyway, we love our trout too much, dude. We love our trout. No, it's a good thing. You're smarter for it. It's a good thing. So there's all the context. And and uh, this is a little fun little twist. Bent listener John Brewer, whose name should sound familiar, since we just made fun we of him just, in we the just awkward tore him fishing up. photo. We just tore <laughs> also sent us a story from the, the magazine Popular Science. And, and that story is written by Monica Blazinski, who's a materials scientist working on alternatives to de-icing salts. She's analyzing how, how fish, insects, and plants deal with ice in an attempt to develop more benign antifreeze compounds. One of the most promising potential sources, fish blood. Species Ooh. like the Antarctic toothfish create glycoproteins that keep their blood from freezing, even in the coldest waters on Earth. Blazinski and her colleagues have now isolated a compound in those glycoproteins primarily responsible for their antifreeze characteristics. She writes, these small compounds lock into place with water molecules like a key in a lock to prevent ice from forming. And I'm sure that is a massive oversimplification for people like me, but I yeah. can kind of see it. Now, you can't just dump a bunch of fish blood on an icy road and have it do the same thing as salt. Like that, that, right. that won't work. The glycoproteins break down quickly in open air. And frankly, that's probably good news for the Antarctic toothfish because... Otherwise, they might be in trouble. I already haven't seen one in years. I was wondering how they were doing. <laughs> where, where? I used to catch them all the time. Uh, so instead of doing that, we're not just like slaughtering these fish and spreading their blood everywhere. Blazinski and her colleagues have discovered that polyvinyl alcohol, an inexpensive compound that's non-toxic to humans and aquatic life, is surprisingly similar to the active antifreeze agent in fish blood. They're working to engineer slight changes the chemical structure of PVA based on what they're they're learning from studying the fish to create a cheap, readily available de-icing compound that will not rust your car or pollute your rivers. So there you go. Like that's, that's my feel good story for the day. Yeah. That's great. I saw this headline and at first I thought they were going to try and like figure out how to do this with fish blood, but basically they're learning from the fish blood how to synthesize this. Yes. Yes. No, no actual fish blood. I'm all for that. I really am. And, you know, we were, we were joking about the salt out here. I feel like salting out here, it's one of those things that most people know, like, it's it's really not good. But we're so in it, man. Like, we're so ingrained in it. it it's just not going away. Like, it's not – you can buy salt. For people who, who don't live in salt places where you, need, where you need the shit, you can buy salt anywhere. Like, as of Thanksgiving – like you can go to the gas station; they're selling bags of salt out in front of the Seven Eleven. There are bags of salt. You can go to the post office, and they got salt. And like it's so crazy here. If there's snow forecast for five days from now, they start salting the shit today. Like there'll be salt on the roads today. It's a terrible so idea. I I think I think this is great. I just. I applaud Montana and I'm sure there's other states where they like really took that to heart and were like, we don't need to do this to get through our winter here, man, five days out chance of flurries, get the trucks out there, salt that shit down. You could cure meat on the damn, on the damn street, <laughs> dude. Uh, so don't lick the sidewalk kids. Just don't do it. Yeah. But no, I think, I think that would be incredibly smart if we could figure out how to do that. And, and it is no right? joke. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the fish is one thing. Yes, that's obviously very important to us, but the, the, the truck stuff is no joke either, man. I mean, my frame just rotted, rotted straight through. 
So yep. if you don't have to deal with that, uh, good for you. Um, well, I I will incorporate fish blood uh, in a sense into my next story, as well as probably a pinch or two of salt. Okay, because uh, we, we uh, yeah, now I'm intrigued. Bang, bang on right there. We recently got an email from a listener that said we don't dabble in fish cookery on this on this program as much as he would like, and I kind of disagree because apparently he missed my riveting expose of fermented sushi a few weeks ago. Where were you on that one, bud? But that's okay. It's all right. I'm going to try and make up for it uh, with this one. And this comes to us, uh, of all places, from the South China Morning Post. Headline, pet food. Malaysian woman's koi soup raises eyebrows after she makes meal out of dead fish. And it's exactly what Oh, that what was good wordplay right there. Pet food. I got it. I got it. See? That's nice. See? They're pretty smart. They're pretty smart. Good journalism over there. Um, it's exactly what it sounds like. And this is from the story. Just a little bit here. Japanese koi are typically thought of as expensive ornamental fish rather than food. So a Malaysian woman caused quite a stir on social media when she shared pictures of her dead pet koi being turned into soup. Amanda Omichua first posted the photos on a Facebook group with more than 2 million members called Cooking Fails of the Day. All right, so that's, that's where she's... That's where she went, okay. That's where she went, okay. In her post, Omichua included a photo of over a dozen of her dead pet koi fish laying on the floor, which according to her, all died of suffocation when her domestic helper forgot to turn off the water supply to the fish tank, resulting in low oxygen. Now... I read that and reread that several times, and I'm not a fish tank nerd. But do you think they meant that the domestic helper forgot to turn on the water supply? Like, if you forgot to turn off the water supply, wouldn't your koi be overly oxygenated? I would think. <laughs> think about I, it. I, that doesn't, you're right. That doesn't make it. Unless there's just some weird stuff in the like. Uh, no, I can't. I can't I, I figure out how that would some, make sense, dude. Yeah. Some 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 tank people are gonna write and be like, "No, you get a pH." And I always keep my. I don't know. I just it just caught me off guard. That didn't seem right to me. It's irrelevant in the long run. Um, anyway, this woman documented every single step of this process. So first, it's it's more than a dozen dead koi. Then there's the shot of all the beautiful koi hacked into a million pieces in a strainer, right? Just like rough. <laughs> it's a rough chop with a cleaver, right? And then you've got a pot full of koi simmering on the stove. And then the finished product, a steaming hot bowl of koi soup. Now, here's the thing, right? They're just carp. That's all they yeah. are, right? They're, they're, they're very just pretty carp. carp. And, yeah, they're very pretty carp. And lots of people, Asians especially, eat carp. That's not weird. It's part of their culture. They eat carp all the time. But despite knowing this, the shot of the bowl, the finished bowl of soup makes me gag a little. And I attribute this gagging to two things. It's one, it's just the color of the fish. Like there's a, a very vibrant, still very vibrant, bright orange and white koi head in the middle of the bowl with those boiled out, glazed over eyeballs. And it's to me, it's just off putting. I'm sorry. And second, the broth looks like dirty dishwater. Like it looks to me like it would have no flavor other than that of your pellet fed koi. So I, I know the eating of carp is not weird, but I mean, you've saw the pic. Does the soup look good to you? Like, does it look like good soup? So you sent me these photos and uh, no, it, 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 <laughs> it doesn't look like the, the fish soup that I prefer to make, but you know what? 
I don't think you can judge particularly a soup just by how it looks. You eat with your eyes first, man. Come on. If, if one of my boys in Louisiana threw a koi in some gumbo, I'd be like, oh, that looks delicious. <laughs> looks spicy picante. I, it's just like a bowl of starchy potato water with a giant koi head in the middle of it, dude. I'm Come just on. saying I would reserve judgment. I would try it, and I would reserve judgment until trying it. And I don't have the highest hopes because, like you said, these are pellet-fed koi. I don't think they're going to be the, the, most, the tastiest of all the fishes. But I've been wrong before. Even if she made the soup out of regular carp she bought at the fish market and posted it to to a cooking Facebook group, I'd still be like, well, that looks shitty. Like that doesn't the, the, the koi just takes it to a whole other level. But the vibrant colors, I got to admit, dude, the vibrant colors in the soup are, are, are just a little strange. It throws I, you off. It does. It, just, it does. It throws it's, you it's, off. It's, it throws you off. So um, anyway, some of the comments from the social media post are interesting. And remember, this is on an Asian version of Facebook. This isn't our Facebook. So these were all translated in the story. But uh, one person wrote, no way they are too cute. Another jested that this was a dish for nobility. And my personal favorite, someone asked how they were, because if they were good, they'd consider setting up a tank and rearing them just for eating purposes. Like to have your oh. own, like, 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 like raising chickens. That'd be very expensive. I was. I don't know how cheap koi. koi I don't know what what koi costs over there, but they are they are not cheap. So um, yeah, koi soup. I mean, it wasn't wasteful. I get. I guess it's better than putting them in a garbage bag, and they surely would have clogged the toilet, especially one of those low pressure toilets. Like, there's no way you're getting all them down. I fully support it. I fully support (laughs) it. You know, you had the koi. They're dead. They're fresh. Eat them. I might have tried. I might have gone with a different preparation. But I, 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 the the basic idea of what she was doing, I'm fully in favor of. I probably would have fried them, but I'm an American, so of course I'm going to fry them. What the hell else am I going to do? I'm not creative enough to think of other ways to prepare my fish. Uh, so I I love what she was doing, and I, I think she was trolling everybody, and I think that's kind of fun too. I think she was just like, look what I did. I ate my pets. How pissed off are you people? Oh, 100%. 100%. Now, now Phil's got to troll everything we just, just went through. What do you want to do this week, Phil? Do you want to play hooky on your surgeon uh, and, and go ice fishing? You want to spread some rock salt across the streets of Montana? Uh, cook some cook some koi soup? Save some Atlantic salmon? Lots of options, and uh, we'll see what Phil comes back with. The winner of Fish News this week is John Brewer? John, between your awkward fishing photo and contribution to Fish News, you're practically a third co-host this week. I hope Joe and Miles send you more stickers than you know what to do with, and I cannot wait to hear your end-of-the-line segment. You gotta be highly skilled for these f***ing shows, you understand that? Yes, I do understand. Are you well-versed there? Are you very smart man? Yes, I am. All right. Today's trivia contestant is one of my absolute favorite Minnesotans of all time. Mandy Yurick. Hey, guys. How is it going? Good. So for those of you out there who don't know Mandy, first of all, you should, but she's a, she's a tournament angler, an ice fishing savant. I learned a lot from her. Uh, radio TV host, fishing gear designer, former hunting guide, and uh, most importantly for this segment, a trained biologist. And I know I missed some stuff there, Mandy, because you do like everything, but thanks, thanks, for, uh, thanks for coming on. No, this is awesome. Thanks for the invite. Yeah, of course. Uh, so you ready to play? You ready to do some trivia? I'm ready to play. <laughs> all right. So, so like, you, we just nailed all those things you do. Put on your biologist hat for this one, all right? Okay. Uh, and, and to start off with, this isn't the actual trivia question. I'm just kind of 
checking you out here. Do you know off the top of your head the scientific name for smallmouth bass? No, and I should. No, I, I wouldn't have either. And <laughs> and I'm gonna I'm gonna butcher the pronunciation, but I figure you'll probably help me with that. Is it is it Micropterus or Micropterus? <laughs> yes, she doesn't know either. That makes me feel better. All right, so I'm going with Micropterus dolomiu. Right, that's your that's your scientific name for the smallmouth, and. In a very roundabout way, smallmouth share some of their taxonomic history with one of the greatest black exploitation films in history, which is, of course, Dolomite. Right? Have you seen Dolomite, Mandy? No. What? I'll just jump in real quick and say I've heard this question. Good, best of luck. Yeah. Oh no! <laughs> just best of luck. I'm in this so one. much trouble. <laughs> Miles went so far out in left I, field here. I went. I went deep on this one. <laughs> okay. So the question for you today is this. How did smallmouth bass end up with a Dolomite-inspired name? And one of the following three things is true. If you get this right, you win, and you'll get uh, great fame and absolutely no fortune at all. All right. So here we'll we go. get you a copy of Dolomite on, yeah, on DVD. On, no, it'll be VHS or maybe Betamax. <laughs> I'm going Betamax. All right. So is it A, Rudy Ray Moore? The creator and star of Dolomite once did odd jobs in a fisheries lab that did research on smallmouth. He told one of the lead investigators that he should name smallmouth after Dolomite because, quote, that's a badass fish and it needs a badass name. Second option, B. In his youth, Rudy Ray Moore spent a lot of time in Detroit with his uncle Frankie. The two regularly fished the Detroit and Huron rivers. Young Rudy was kind of a science geek. So he memorized the Latin names of all the fish they caught. When Rudy invented his famous pimp character, Dolomite, decades later, he named it after his favorite fish, the smallmouth. Or C, in 1802, a smallmouth bass was sent to Paris from an unknown source in the U.S. The ichthyologist who examined the specimen gave it the scientific name Dolomue after one of his drinking buddies a local mineralogist who he idolized because of Dolomue's reputation with the ladies. Subsequently, the rock Dolomite was also named after Dolomue, again, probably due to the guy's reputation as a player because he didn't even discover that mineral. Carl Linnaeus did. All right. So to get recap, to recap, because I know I just gave you a lot. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just give you a short recap here. Is it a, the creator of the movie Dolomite also named the smallmouth bass B, the creator of the movie Dolomite named his famous character after the smallmouth bass or C smallmouth bass were named after a famous French ladies man whose reputation as a player was so good. He also got the mineral Dolomite named for him, even though he didn't discover it. I got to go with C man. That's an epic answer. I don't care if it's true or not. That thing's epic. That's the I'm right going answer? with C. Ding, 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 ding. <laughs> she nails it. Woo-hoo! Yes. Good for you, because when I tried this question, I was like, I don't remember anything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> I was just so excited to make a connection between Dolomite and Smallmouth Bass that I couldn't let it go. You, you went way off the rails with that one. Just mm-hmm. way off the rails. I, I know. I know. All right, but I feel like I feel like I have to defend myself because I wanted to ask Mandy a smallmouth question, right? Because she's uh-huh. like a smallmouth savant and she's mm-hmm. a biologist, and so I was I was 
I was digging in there and I learned the scientific name for smallmouth. I learned that it, it shares the same root as dolomite, which was just too much for me to pass up. Oh, I, and I know that. then yeah. I learned the, the history of how both the mineral dolomite and the smallmouth got their name from a French society scientist better known for his infidelity than his research. I, and I could not leave it alone. I realized that one when I went out like way out in left field, but I, I, I couldn't help myself. I'm sorry. I know it's just all those things. It's just so you. It's just so yeah. miles, those things. Yeah. Well, th- thankfully, Mandy has been on the show before and even played trivia before. Otherwise, I, she may never come back again after that. I, I think Mandy <laughs> learned something. That's what I think. Mm. And I, I, I happen to know that she is the kind of person who appreciates learning. So I think, I think Mandy will be back. I, I hope she'll be back. And She'll be back. We'll have her back. I'll get her back. If she's soured on you, I'll get her back. Look, if she's busy, <laughs> if she's busy the next time we call her, that'll just be one more thing for me to feel shameful about. I'm the shame wizard, of course. The shame wizard? <laughs> the shame wizard! But, as you're about to hear in, in End of the Line, Joe is currently feeling uh, completely shameless, especially Extremely. for a guy who's supposedly saddled with Roman Catholic guilt. This week, <laughs> in honor of the pending Valentine's Day, or as I like to call it, Corporate Love Day, Joe <laughs> is going to take a slight departure from our standard profile of like a single bait and instead dig into the backstory of an entire bait manufacturing company that definitely did not suffer the shackles of shame. Fishy, 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 fishy! Well, that's not loud enough, Bert. Compacting everything Frank Johnson contributed to fishing into a single end-of-the-line segment would be almost impossible. To say he was an innovator is an understatement. Engineering genius is very fitting, and while I never had the chance to spend time with Frank, who passed away in 2016, I have rubbed elbows with a lot of people that did, and they've all got stories. While Frank was a brilliant, book-smart man, he also knew how to have a good time. And in the case of our Valentine's Link story today, he knew how to translate a good time into a smart business move. Although Frank invented products like the aluminum interchangeable unibutt system, which has pretty much become standard on all big game trolling rods, he is arguably best known as the man behind Moldcraft lures. Frank had gotten into the injection molding business in the early 1970s and actually helped develop the tooling to create the first ever mass-produced pacemaker. But after a few years, the stress of developing products like pacemakers and jet engine parts that could cost someone their life if you messed up kind of took its toll. And that's when Frank combined his engineering skills and his lifelong love of fishing to create the first soft injection molded one piece big game trolling lures, trademarking the term soft head to refer to his family of baits. Frank would end up developing lures like the Wide Range, Bobby Brown, and Spooler, all of which are still in shops today and considered timeless classics in the offshore scene, having caught countless monster marlin sailfish and wahoo the world over. But those aren't what got Moldcraft off the ground. The first lure Frank ever produced was the Squirt Squid. Available in four lengths and five colors, these semi-soft molded squids would become game changers as teasers in both the recreational and tournament worlds, as well as for commercial captains green stick fishing for giant bluefin tuna. Matter of fact, you watch Wicked Tuna Outer Banks and you'll still see the original squirt squids skipping around behind those boats. Then, one fateful day, shall we say, in the mid-1970s, Frank was shown a photo 
of a young lady having a really good time with one of his squirt squids. And she wasn't on a boat, if you catch my drift. Now, Frank could have just laughed this off. But instead, seeing he was a firm believer that sex does in fact sell, he retooled some of the squirt squid molds and began a foray into the adult novelties market. And just as he was in the fishing market, he was a pioneer in this market too. Playing off the popularity of the pet rock, Frank named his creation the pet... Well, you get it. I don't have to say it. And in 1978, Screw Magazine awarded it the title of Product of the Year. Now, I chatted with Frank's son, Frank Jr., who runs Moldcraft now, and he told me the pet rock with a C received this high honor because most adult toys at the time were made of latex. And if you happen to be a person that had an allergic reaction to latex, those toys weren't very fun at all. Frank's product, on the other hand, was the first of its kind made of injection molded vinyl, which caused no allergic reactions. Hence, they were fun for the whole family. Now, I heard a rumor from several people over the years that the toy side of the business got so huge, Frank Johnson started a whole other company, that being Doc Johnson, which is still one of the biggest adult toy manufacturers in the world. I was even told that to this very day, one side of the facility is pumping out candies for use in the cockpits of sport fishing boats, while the other side is churning out candies for the bedroom on the love boat. So, is Frank Johnson actually Doc Johnson? Answer, he's not. Frank Jr. debunked this rumor once and for all, though he did add, man, I wish we were Doc Johnson. Frank Jr. explained that while their sex toys made the company money for a long time, they eventually had to kick that side of the biz out of the waterbed. Because as years went on, the novelties market became flooded with cheaper products from China. And while Frank's products may have been better quality, the cost of goods made it impossible to compete for distribution. According to Frank Jr., however, all the molds are still ready to go at the manufacturing facility in Florida. He even said if I ever need a couple thousand, he's happy to run me a batch. I'm good on that, but when I got my first boat many years ago, I did buy dozens of Moldcraft's junior hookers. They're actually the smallest trolling chuggers the company makes, but my little single outboard beater wasn't exactly getting me far enough offshore to pull a squirt squid teaser or wide range or Bobby Brown for Marlin. Those tiny chuggers knocked the fire out of Bonita, False Albacore, and Chicken Dolphin in my meager inshore range, though, and every once in a while... I'd even get a schooly bluefin to rise to that daisy chain of tiny hookers. For a 22-year-old, full of piss and vinegar in a third-hand 86 pursuit, pretending to be Tread Barda, that was the most orgasmic feeling in the world. We're, uh, we're going to get some emails about that one. Oh, Especially totally. from all you people who were pissed off that we made fun of penis-shaped lures. <laughs> Well, yeah, we are. And you know what? I'm not sorry, because there's a difference here. Penis lures I agree. are and were stupid and pointless, okay? Erotic toys, they're just a, that's a celebration of human sexuality. <laughs> there, there you go. If you want to complain about that distinction, you can vent your frustration in an email to bent at com using the subject line, grow, screw yourself, Joe. Yes. Yes, I will gladly read every single one of those. Also, uh, send awkward fishing photos, bar nominations, and sale bin items um, to that same email account and use those Degenerate Angler and Bent Podcast hashtags for the chance to get yourself some sticker packs. It is only February, but I am already looking forward to embarrassing myself with some mm. sight fishing next spring. Mm. <laughs> I can't wait for that. I, I look forward to those, those moments of humiliation. Before we go, I want to leave you 
with a question. And I'm, I'm serious about this. Does dark house spearing count as sight fishing? Mm, I'm personally saying no. I'd say it counts as spearing, which naturally requires a good line of sight, no matter what you're chucking at. But let's hear from you. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. 